Father, thank you that we have all heard the voice of Jesus calling to us, calling to us to repent of our sins, calling to us to believe in his death and resurrection and the redemption which you have offered to us and we have responded to it. Oh, thank you that we can hear the voice of Jesus every day in our lives when we listen. Thank you that we can hear the voice of Jesus when we open your word. I pray, Father, we would hear your voice tonight, that you would be glorified by our tongue, that you would speak to us and help us, Lord, to hear the things that you would love to say to us and that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapters 6, 7, and 8 were Gideon, you mighty man of valor, hiding in that wine press and afraid to go do anything. Um, but by the end of chapter 8, well, he kind of stepped into the role God saw him in. And we see at the end of chapter 8 that Gideon had 70 sons. Israel, of course, returned to their evil ways. And the people did not treat the family of Gideon well. Uh, and we know Gideon, we talked about this last week, that Gideon did have some positive qualities. But he also had some negative qualities. We saw that at the end of chapter 8. Like setting up the ephod for everybody to worship. Um, and his polygamy. I mean, he had enough wives to have 70 kids. I don't know how many wives that takes, but if it's seven kids apiece, that's 10 wives. And, you know, you can keep doing that. I'm not going to. Um, but then, well, however many wives that was, wasn't enough, so he got himself a Canaanite concubine in another city. And by that woman, he had Abimelech. And that's kind of mentioned there in, at the end of chapter 8, um, it becomes a really big problem in chapter 9. Verse 1. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerebuel, Jereb, Jer, Gideon, right? Because nobody should know how to pronounce that. Jerubbaal. I have to say it really slow. But Gideon uh, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers, and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Gideon reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth, which was their false god, Baal of the covenant, with which Abimelech hired, I love this description, worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Aphra and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbaal, on one but Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo. And they went and made Abimelech king besides the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. Now, if you remember in chapter 8, after the defeat of Midian, um, the people wanted to make Gideon king. They said, you be our king and then your son and your grandson. He said, no, God is your king. So Gideon said no to this, and his sons agreed. Well, all except Abimelech. 
So he creates this plot. He gets the men of Shechem to give him some money so he can hire worthless and reckless men. And he gets himself made king of the Canaanite people, essentially. Not necessarily over Israel. We're going to see that here in a little bit. But he goes and kills all of his brothers. What a great guy, right? Let's, you know, I want to be king. That didn't mean he had to kill his brothers. He could have done something else. But he kills them all, except for one. The youngest son, Jotham, escapes. And there we pick up in verse 7. Now, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And he said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil, with which they honor God and men, and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit, and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, which is essentially a tumbleweed, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. Have you ever seen the amount of shade a tumbleweed casts? That's really not all that great of an offer, is it? I mean, maybe you could get a foot under there if you don't get the, you know, the, the pokies in your foot. But you're really, it's really not going to give a lot of shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Um, and of course, bramble, or, or even today, tumbleweeds can be used as kindling because they ignite very quickly. Um, so you have this, this parable that Jotham proposes from the top of Mount Gerizim. Now, if you remember, Mount Gerizim overlooks Shechem. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal were the mountains where they announced the blessings and cursings when they first came into the land. So Mount Gerizim was a very important place to the Israelites. And um, from the top of Mount Gerizim overlooking Shechem, the people of Shechem could hear him. Because it, it wasn't that high up. And they were kind of in a bit of a natural... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Amphitheater below. Because of just the way that the, the uh, topography is there. And so he, he gives them this parable. And you, just something I want you to notice. That the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vineyard all said no. Uh, all of these were used in sacrifices in the tabernacle. They didn't have the temple yet. But all of these were used in tabernacle. Uh, for the various sacrifices that were to be made. And basically, each one of them gives the same answer. Do you want me to stop honoring God to rule over you? Except for the bramble. So the trees who are asking for a king are the men of Shechem. The bramble, of course, is Abimelech. And then Jotham gives us in verse 16 an interpretation. Now, therefore... If you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house, 
and have done to him as he deserves. For my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day, and killed his seventy sons on one stone, and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Gideon and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech, and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Be'er, I mean, we like to say beer, but it's really not, um, and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So the long story short of the interpretation of this parable, if you have done the right thing, if you have treated my father's household correctly, good for you. Rejoice in one another, and all will be well. If not, I hope you all kill each other. Right? I hope fire comes out from Abimelech to devour Shechem and Beth Milo, and that fire comes out from Beth Milo and Shechem to devour Abimelech. I hope you all kill each other if what you did was wrong. And then he runs away. Um, kind of interesting, you can get to Shechem to the top of Mount Gerizim in about 20 minutes at a flat-out run. So it would take me a couple hours. Um, uh, but if you were in good shape, you could get up. But whatever the case, um, Jotham had a good head start, and he made it to Be'er before they were able to get to him. There were multiple cities that had Be'er as part of their name, so we don't know which one this was, but apparently he was safe there. Now, the rest of the chapter is the interpretation of this parable becoming prophecy. And we're going to see, we already know, right? We, we know that Abimelech and the men of Shechem didn't deal well with Gideon and their, his household. And so we're going to see all the consequences of that. So we pick up in verse 22. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Go figure. Then the crime, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided in the killing of his brothers. So this is what happened. right? So basically, this ill spirit comes between them so that God can deal out some justice. So the men of Shechem, verse 25, sent men in ambush against him, that would be Abimelech, on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by the way along that way, and it was told Abimelech. Now Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. The men of Shechem are kind of fickle in their political affiliations, aren't they? Well, a few years ago, they're committing murder to make Abimelech king, now it's a few years later, and they're robbing Abimelech's men, and Gaal shows up, and they go, yeah, let's, let's, let's follow him instead. <laughs> Just saying. The men of Shechem, not the most reliable bunch. So they go out into the fields, and they gather grapes from their vineyards, and they trod them and made merry, and they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? 
Is he not the son of Jerubbaal, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebel, they have great names in the book of Judges. We've been talking about this all along, right? We had Zeb and Oreb and Zalmunna and and, and now we have um, Zebel. The ruler of the city heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed. His anger was aroused. And he sent messengers to Abimelech, secretly saying, Take note, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and all the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city, and when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as you find opportunity. So Zebul was some kind of governor in Shechem under Abimelech's rule. He clearly did not have the ability to get rid of Gaal and his followers. So he sends a message to Abimelech and says, hey, you got to come deal with this guy. He's speaking against you. They're fortifying the city. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it now. So verse 34, Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood at the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountain. But Zebul said to him, Ah, you just see the shadows of the mountains as if it were men, right? So Zebul's trying to buy Abimelech time to get closer to the city. So Gaal spoke again and said, See, no, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebul looked at him and said, where indeed is your mouth now? That's a really nice way of saying, well, you talk a big game. Where's that at? Um, okay, it's not a really nice way of saying it. It's just a different way of saying it. <laughs> um, where is your mouth now with which you said, who was Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So, you know, Zebul's kind of a good behind-the-scenes guy here. Sends the message. He convinces a bit, uh, uh, Gaal that nobody's coming. Then once he, no, he can't deny it anymore, he goes, fine. They're here to kill you. Let's see what you got. So Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Arumah. And Zebul drove out Gaal. So after Abimelech's attack, Gaal didn't have enough people to hold the city, and Zebul was able to drive him out with his, his men. Oh, I lost my place. Oh, so he drove out Gaal and his brothers, verse 41, so that they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field, and he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. So Abimelech goes overboard, right? The people of Shechem probably just didn't want to fight with Gaal. Zebul cast him out once he was weakened enough to do so. But that wasn't good enough for Abimelech. So he waits until the next day. So the people lived in a fortified city, but all of their 
their crops, their vineyards, all of that, their livestock would have probably been, probably been outside the city walls. So Abimelech waits until they open the gate in the morning. They're thinking everything's okay. Bad guy's defeated. He's been run off. Zebel's back in charge. Abimelech went home. They go out to work the fields. They go out to take care of the livestock. Abimelech rises up and murders all of them. Then he goes into the city and murders everybody in the city. Then he sows all of their fields and everything around with salt so that nothing would ever grow again. Unnecessary. Abimelech, not a nice guy. Verse 46. Now when all the men of the Tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Bereth. And it was told Abimelech, that all the men of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up on Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees. He took it, laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bough and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem died about a thousand men and women. That wasn't necessary. They, they basically surrendered. They ran into the tower. They're like, we're done. We're not going to fight. And so he burns them all alive? Don't worry. It's coming. Abimelech's going to get his in just a few more verses. Right? Just in case you were worried, right? it's like that, that scene in The Princess Bride when when Fred Savage, the kid, asks the grandfather, well, who kills Prince Humperdinck? And the grandpa says, well, no one. Right? But you have to know, there's still a good ending. But Abimelech does die, don't worry. Verse 15. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech's got an idea, right? Well, we, we set the last tower on fire. That worked out pretty well. So let's try that again. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now you have to understand, there were millstones that, could have we that weighed upwards of 1,000 pounds that were pulled by oxen or something like that. But there were also small millstones, uh, or, or they, that's why they called them upper millstones. Um, either the upper millstone would be used one of two ways. You could either use it by hand in your house to um, grind your own grain, or you could use it on top of a bigger millstone, so as the grain passed through, it was crushed between the two. Right? There were two ways to use an upper millstone. The point was, it didn't weigh 1,000 pounds. If this woman could have lifted a 1,000-pound stone and thrown it off the roof, they should have just sent her out to deal with Abimelech, right? So it was probably a smaller millstone, I'm still guessing, 15, 20 pounds. And if, if the tower was even only 100 feet high, a, a 15, 20 pound stone falling on someone's head, not going to feel good. Um, and it cr so it crushed his skull. Now look at the pride of Abimelech. He called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed me. But we all know it was a woman. Doesn't matter what happened afterwards. I wish they would have named her. Um, and so his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. 
And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty straight up, right? We basically get this mini civil war between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem would have been Canaanites, uh, not Israelites, but Abimelech, they had they elected or appointed Abimelech their king. That's why I call it a civil war. Um, or a rebellion or a revolt, you can call it whatever you want. Um, but in the end, exactly what Jotham said should happen, happened. The fire of Shechem consumed Abimelech and the fire of Abimelech literally consumed Shechem. So the parable and the interpretation of it became a prophecy. Um, and so even though Abimelech was wicked, he was still a judge in Israel. And God still used him to accomplish his purposes, which in this case was to punish the men of Shechem for worshiping uh, the god Baal Bereth. And so I think this is a testimony to God's faithfulness to his people. It's not an excuse that we can do anything we want, right? We can be evil and commit terrible sin and God will use it. It's a testimony to his faithfulness. That even if we do something wrong or even if we blow it or when we're not perfect, well, God can still work. I'm very grateful for that. But I do want to just take a moment to talk about pride. All of this was pride. Pride of the men of Shechem. Pride of Abimelech. Pride of, uh, well, the woman should be proud when she, that was a good throw, right? We, she can have a little bit of that. But Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And surely this was the case for all involved. They all had this great amount of pride. They acted on that pride. And in the end, they all suffered the consequences for it. Chapter 10. Now you may be looking at chapter 10 thinking, well, this is a really short chapter. Yeah. I have several really long rabbit trails. It's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just a couple rabbit trails. We will, we will be okay. You ready? Well, bye. Did I scare you away? <laughs> Probably a work thing, I'm guessing. Chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Now, I said Dodo. It's probably pronounced Dudu, because if you just have one D-O, it's do. So if you have two, it's Dudu. Um, but as was pointed out by one of the commentaries, um, that name actually means loving in Hebrew. So it's actually a really pretty name um, in Hebrew. Not so much in English. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, so uh, Tola rose up. He was a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shemir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shemir. That's all we get. We don't know who he fought against. We don't know who uh, he delivered Israel from, just that he reigned as a judge or, or ruled as a judge for 23 years. After him, verse 3, arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kimon. Um, so Jair is kind of interesting. He is the first judge that actually came from the east side of the Jordan. 
Remember, um, Gad, there's three tribes. It's the half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and what's the other one? Reuben. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Why can't I remember that? Uh, yeah, I, when we were going through Joshua, we did that a lot. Um, but they settled on the east side of the Jordan, and, and so uh, the, being a Gileadite, he was from that side. Uh, so he was the first judge from that side of the Jordan. Um, he had 30 sons who rode with him on 30 donkeys. This was a sign of power and authority. And he had 30 towns called Havoth Jair, which means the towns of Jair. Right? Again, it sounds a little better in Hebrew. Uh, and then we get to verse 6. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So you have to think about this. They turn back to evil, not a surprise. They abandon God, start worshiping these all false gods of all the nations around them. Not a surprise. It's a cycle that repeats throughout the book of Judges. Um, God gets angry with them, and now he does something that he hasn't done before. He sells them into hands of enemies that are on both sides. So one enemy conquers all of the people on the east side of the Jordan. Then they cross the Jordan, and they fight against Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim, so that all of Israel was severely distressed, right? That was the Ammonites. But then the Philistines were coming from the coast down and coming the other way against them, right? So if you, uh, you imagine my Bible is Israel, right? And, and so here's the Jordan River. So they conquer over here and start coming this way. With the Mediterranean Sea over here, they start coming this way. So they're oppressed on both sides. They have no escape. They have no place to run because, well, they kind of deserved it. Kind of. They deserved it. They had abandoned God. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. And we're going to stop there for a moment for rabbit trail number one. When the people cry out to God, they admit their sin. They say, we, we've abandoned you. But there's no true repentance. Not yet. I heard this illustration used once and I always thought it was appropriate. If you go to a prison and you ask the prisoners if they're sorry for what they did, they will typically say yes. But then you have to dig a little deeper. Are they actually sorry for their crime or are they just sorry that they got caught? And now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are many who are truly sorry for their crime. They're truly repentant. They want to change and, and, and have a second chance. But I think a lot of them are just sorry that they got caught. How many times does somebody say, oh, I'm sorry. But if there's no change, 
If there's no true repentance, there's no fruit of that, and we're going to get there, that doesn't mean anything. God said in Joel 2.13, Rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And I love that because it was a sign in Israel and in and many of the cultures of the Middle East that if, if something happened and you were mourning, you would tear your clothes, right? And you'd sit in, in dust and you'd throw ashes on your head and you would do all these things. Or, oh, you know, that guy or that gal are clearly mourning. But once the period of mourning is over, if there's no change, if there's no difference, what good did that do? That's why God said he wants us to rend our hearts, not our garments. And they admitted that they had sinned against God and forsaken him. In Jeremiah 2.13, we read, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And these cisterns were interesting. Um, they, you know, Israel is desert. So any rain was very precious, and, and so they would build cisterns. They would dig out cisterns. They'd have to get down to the rock and then kind of carve out these cisterns and then set up systems where as it rained, the water would fill the cistern, right? Which, if you had no rain or you, had, you didn't live near running water of some sort, this was better than nothing. Well, the problem was it, with it was if there was one crack in that rock, well, that cistern didn't hold water. And you would go through all that work for nothing. So not only had they abandoned the living water in God, right? You've abandoned me, the fountain of living water. They abandoned that for stale water in a cistern. But on top of that, the cistern they built couldn't even really hold water. And the fact is that people will always replace the one true God with something. In the Old Testament, they named them, right? Molech, Ashtoreth, Baal, various others that we'll see. Um, Dagon, eventually we'll get to Dagon, who was one of the Philistine gods, and so on and so forth. Today, we call it something else, don't we? Well, you know, I just, I need to make enough money so I can be happy. Well, then money is your God. Oh, I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to worship the trees. That's what Ashtoreth does. No different. Or I'm, I'm just, I'm going to seek pleasure. I'm going to have every good, every fun, every whatever experience that I can find. The Greeks called that one Aphrodite. It's no different. I was having this discussion this morning uh, with my pastor friend Ralph that, um, you know, people think, well, we're doing something new. We're doing something progressive. You know, we're abandoning the, the patriarchal ways and, and we're, we're coming up with a new way to worship things and we're coming up with a new way to think about things and we're coming up with a new way to approach things. No, what you've done is failed to study history because it's all been done before. That's why Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. There never has been been around for as long as we've been around there's nothing new 
So the problem with this is we become like what we worship. So if we worship something false, then that worship will degrade us. When we worship the one true God through Jesus Christ, then God will elevate us. Of course, we see the consequences of this in our world. A lot of people degrading themselves by what is false and then becoming like their, those false things. And of course, we see the benefits of following Jesus and becoming more like him as we follow his ways that he has taught us in his word. And I praise God because, you know, it, it kind of feels a little bit bleak here in Judges. And if you watch the news or look out into the world, it looks a little bit bleak. But Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living, living water. And of course, he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. God gave us a way out. God gave us an answer. And that answer is always going to be Jesus. So, the Lord said, verse 11, to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the people of Ammon, and from the Philistines, and the Sidonians, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites, when they oppressed you and you cried out to me, I delivered you from their hand? God's like, we've been here. We've done this before. Haven't I delivered you from all these people when you cried out to me? Yet, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. So God points out how many times he had delivered them and how they had forsaken him anyway. He then tells the people, fine. You want to worship these gods? Cry out to them. You know, in our day and age, people are going to stand before God one day. You know what? Their money's not going to save them. How many trees they planted? Not going to save them. How many pleasurable experiences they chased after? Not going to save them. We could keep going on and on down that list. Because none of those things will save us. And I think it's very, very sad when God gives people up who refuse to repent. And somebody might say, oh, well, this is the Old Testament, right? That, that's different. You just got to turn to Romans chapter 1. You don't have to. I encourage you to do so. That could be your homework. In Romans chapter 1, we read that God gives people up to their reprobate minds. He basically says, if you want to sin, if you want to ignore me, if you don't want to follow me, he will allow us to make that choice. He will also allow us the consequences that come from that choice. So we can choose poorly and be slaves to our sin, or we can choose wisely and follow Jesus, being obedient to his word by the power of his spirit. Romans 6.16 tells us, Do you not know that if you present yourselves as any, to anyone, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. People who have ignored God and God has allowed them to run with their sin will hopefully see the consequences of it and repent. And so the Israelites, they take the hint 
Because in the next verse, well, they do some real work. So the children of Israel, in verse 15, said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Now that is repentance. The people do repent, not just admitting their sins, but they actually put away the false gods, and then they uh, begin to serve the Lord. And I love, love, love this comment. You're right, right? Verse 15, you're right. We've blown it. Do with us whatever you feel is right. Just please help. That's repentance. That is a broken and contrite heart. They were suffering the consequences for their sin, which Numbers 32-23 tells us that our sin will always find us out. But now they're doing the real work of repentance. They're showing the fruit of repentance, actually turning from their sin and turning to God. Luke 3.8 talks about that. And then they cast themselves on the mercy of God. I love this. Do whatever you feel is right. They cast themselves on the mercy of God. Because I'll tell you what, the mercy of God is, is a whole lot better than the wrath of God. And as a result, when he could no longer endure their misery because of his grace, his mercy, and his compassion, he decides to deliver them. Now, we're not going to see that until chapter 11, so we'll get into it next week. But what a beautiful statement. You see, the people deserved justice. Now, I don't know about you, but I never go to God and ask for justice for myself. Uh, there are times that I ask God to execute justice on others. None of you. Um, right? But I never go to God and go, you know what, Lord? I made a really big mistake. I deserve your wrath. Let me have it. I don't do that. No, I appeal to his mercy. <laughs> I appeal to his grace. Because, you know, I've been, I've been a little harsh in what we've talked about tonight. And we need to hear that sometimes. We all do. Uh, but there ain't a one of us who's perfect. We're all sinners. Some of us a little more than others. That's why I get a higher chair. Right? Because my sin is a little higher than yours. I know it, you know. I, I often identify with Paul. He said, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That's Paul. I ain't anywhere near as good as Paul. <laughs> so if he was the chief of sinners, I don't know want I don't want to know where that lands me. But they deserved justice. They deserved the consequences of their sin. So they cast themselves on the mercy of God because they didn't want to get what they deserved. And what did God do? Well, he showed them mercy. Mercy is not giving them what they deserved. Because what they deserved was utter destruction. He told them, if you do this, I will destroy you. They did it. He gave them opportunities to repent. He didn't have to do that. He could have just gone, I'm, I'm done with you. <laughs> Let's find some new people. But you want to know what the problem would have been? And God already knew this. If he had chosen different people, they would have done the same thing. So he gave them chance after chance after chance. And it was all for us, too. So we could look at this example. 
And then he gives them grace by giving them what they didn't deserve by sending them a deliverer. And we are no different. We deserve justice for our sins. And the punishment for our sin is, of course, death. But God showed us mercy by not giving us the death we deserved. Instead, he poured out that justice on Jesus. So instead of death, we get forgiveness. We get eternal life in Christ, all because of his grace. Mm. 2 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6 says this, For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So I put this verse out there. You know, I don't, uh, I don't want you to go home feeling like I beat you up unless you needed to be beat up. Right there. I don't want you to go home going, man, I'm such a horrible, wretched person. Because we all are. Yes. Um, what I want you to take away is, you know, we all have blind spots. We all have places in our lives that maybe we're missing something. So examine yourself before God. Make God your first priority. You know, if there's some sin, I'm not here to condemn you. That would never be my job. But if you've got some sin in there that you haven't dealt with, deal with it. Repent. Get into the Word. If you're not sure where to go or what to do, come talk to me or one of our elders or, or somebody you trust. And, and do that work. You know, not, not because I want to point out how all of us are rotten. We all already know we're rotten. If you don't know you're rotten, come talk to me. We need a different conversation. But what we do need to know is that we can throw ourselves on the mercy of God. That we can trust in his grace. That we can live in his power so that we can bring him honor and so that he can keep us from falling. Praise God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. Because without him, Lord, we would all be lost. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that by your grace and your mercy, we can be forgiven, made your children, brought into your family, and that all of those things will no longer have power over us. <coughs> and Father, you know, just like I know, like we all know, that we're not always going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes. Help us, Father, instead of running from you, that when we blow it, that we run to you, knowing that you will receive us, Lord, pick us up, hose us off, give us a pat on the behind, and help us on our merry way. You're so good. May you be glorified in all we do the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.